0: Katie Brain and you're listening to Goodness Gracious Grief. If you don't know already my reason for starting this podcast was not just because my experience with grief when I lost my dad but because I was and I am still really uncomfortable with the thought of death and dying. The subject is taboo for many of us but unless we have these conversations how are we to know our loved one wishes when they're gone? I guess that by talking about it, I hoped I would break some of the barriers and ease the topic into my vocabulary so I can begin to think about what I would want, so it doesn't have to be left as a burden on someone else, whoever that may be. Today, I've decided to talk about assisted dying. Now, assisted dying allows a dying person the choice to control their death if they decide their suffering is unbearable however, it's currently illegal in the UK. In the news recently, we heard of Paralympic gold medalist and world champion wheelchair racer Marique Vervout, who ended her life through euthanasia at the age of just 40. Vervout suffered with an incurable degenerative muscle disease which caused seizures in her legs and left her in constant pain. But She had accepted at her young age that her time on earth would be shorter than many. Once she had made that decision to die, this is what she said. It gives a feeling of rest to people. I know when it's enough for me, I have those papers. Being absolutely petrified of death myself, I find it very confusing how someone would choose to die before their time was up. But, at the same time, I think it's wrong for people to have to suffer unnecessarily. And this is where that argument of assisted dying begins to get a bit complicated. Sarah Fenton accompanied her husband, Keith, to Dignitas in Switzerland a few years ago. But Keith wished he could have had that same choice closer to home. I spoke to Sarah and I started by asking her just to tell me a bit about Keith.
1: Keith um, grew up in Ashford, in Kent. Um, He joined the army when he was 16 um, as an apprentice Um, and he um, became a lithographic print technician, Um, so he used to print maps and things. Um, He was a soldier for 35 years Um, and he was very good at his trade. He won sort of awards and things throughout his army career, and he was fiercely proud of his military service. He'd always be the first to help others, but he found it very hard to ask others for help. Um, I think that was probably part of his army upbringing. Um, um, But he really was the best husband and father anyone could wish for.
0: Uh, and what was he like as a a family man did you have you know do you have a big knit family or is it small?
1: Yeah no, we're not a very big family um but he was he loved getting together for family occasions and um you know he was just great with the kids. He'd take them out and they'd go um take some ropes to the woods and build swings in and um you know he he was just a real good dad and sort of loved to be with the family. We had lovely holidays and things and um, yeah, he was I guess you'd call him dedicated. (laughs) So when did he find out he was ill? He was diagnosed with Huntington's disease in 2008. Um, He could see some of the signs. He knew the disease was in his family and he could sort of sense some of the signs were coming. So It wasn't a great shock to have the diagnosis, Um, but once he was diagnosed in 2008, he then took early retirement in 2009. Um, Yeah, and for the next sort of five or six years or so, we continued, you know, managing well together as a family.
0: So for someone who doesn't know what Huntington's is, can you just describe what it does to your body?
1: Yeah. It's a n- neurodegenerative um illness. Um so and it affects the nervous system. So um gradually you use lose the ability to do everyday things um he wouldn't be able to change a plug or he couldn't, sometimes he'd forget the process of how to make a cup of tea as as the illness progressed. It progresses very slowly, um, Well, you know, I'm talking about sort of eight years or so on from his diagnosis when things started to get really bad, when he would, um, you know, it would affect his swallowing, so he'd be choking on his food. And that was one of his biggest fears was actually choking um you know he had some quite close calls at times um and he didn't want to go down the route of being peg fed where it's sort of the food is sent you know goes into your body via a tube um um it also affects moods um so his mood swings you know he could be perfectly fine one minute and then the next he'd be in a in a rage about something. Um, you, you, he lost his balance a lot, so he'd regularly fall over and hurt himself. Um, and he couldn't, one of the things he found quite hard towards the end, he couldn't actually control his body temperature. And, mm. you know, sort of he'd be absolutely sweltering, or, you know, the next minute he'd be cold, and then. I think the final straw for him was that he felt he was losing control of his bladder and bowel, and his words were that he felt he was losing control of his life. I um, was about I to
0: say that because obviously yeah. I don't know Keith, and what you've told me about him already—obviously the military background, that kind of role of that military lifestyle—and then you know losing kind of control mm. of yourself—that must have been really, really hard for him to.
1: He really did struggle see. with that, and as I said, he didn't. He found it very hard to ask people for help. So, I mean, as a family, we could sort of sense if he was trying to do something and he needed help and we'd probably just go along and help. But if it if it was having to ask somebody else, oh, could you do this for me? He just couldn't do it. He couldn't bring himself to do that. Um, and he just got to the stage where he gradually started to withdraw and he didn't want to go out or socialise with friends anymore. Um You know, and he'd seen, um, sadly, his father, brother and sister all um, succumb to the disease. So Mm -hmm. he knew what lay ahead for him. um, And he didn't want to have have people taking care of his most basic needs. So, you know, he wouldn't want people feeding, washing or dressing him. Mm -hmm. He was a very proud man. And that sort of the thought of that loss of dignity didn't bear thinking about for him.
0: You've said all that, but still, there is this huge jump from, you know, having Huntington's to yeah. then making that decision that you want to die. You know, yes. what conversations were had there and what was the, the thought process?
1: Um, I remember on the day that he was diagnosed in 2008 and we were coming back in the car from Oxford and he just uh, he, he just sort of threw in the conversation, oh, well, there's always dignitas. And it was like, you know, it was just a sort of flippant throwaway remark at that stage. I really didn't think that sort of uh, eight or nine years on that we would be going going down that route. And um, he he was obviously getting more and more distressed at um, losing sort of the ability to do things that he'd previously been able to do without problems. And... Um, He just knew what the end meant. You know, he was going to end up in a wheelchair, unable to talk, unable to feed himself, um, having everybody care for him, and he just didn't want that to come. Um, So he started talking about going to um, Dignitas. Um, It would have been about the end of 2016, Mm -hmm. and um, he said he wanted to go and then... The kids and I were like, "Oh no, we can manage as a family. We don't need to be looking at that." Um, but he was quite adamant. He kept saying he wanted to go. And unfortunately, in April 2017, he tried to take—well, he did take an overdose. And it was at that point I realised how selfish I was being. Sort of keep saying, "No, you don't need to do that." and I could sort of see how much he was struggling. So um, to see him suffering so much on a daily basis was absolutely heartbreaking. And if I'm totally honest, after he'd taken his overdose, um, I felt, um, how to put it, um, I I actually would look at him sometimes and feel sorry for him that his attempted suicide hadn't worked because he would be so distressed. Um, And I... It just felt hopeless and I sort of think I knew at that stage I had to um, start supporting him and um, sort of help him in his situation um, but because it dawned on me that if I was in his situation I would probably want to do exactly the same thing so from that, that point we sort of as a family thought yeah we can support Keith in this and let's help him get to where he wants to be.
0: So what does the process of going to Dignitas involve? Is it a case of, you know, c- contacting them and saying, yeah. you know, I want to come? And yeah, right well, or?
1: we were, um, this was all com- obviously totally new to us. And I'm sure to anyone that thinks about going down this route, it, nobody has a clue. So when Keith started looking into the process of going to Dignitas, it was just a matter of going on their website and finding out what he had to do. Um, it was really overwhelming um, with the amount of information they required and I mean rightly so because obviously they've got to have safeguards in place um, but particularly with regard to having to get his medical notes to them because uh, we had no idea how we were going to get his medical notes knowing that the GP was unlikely to help for fear of being getting into trouble for them breaking the law um, because they, it could be seen that the GP was assisting him um, as to having um, go to Switzerland, and obviously that could get them into trouble. But I hate to say it, but we became very good at sort of making up stories about why we needed certain things, because, I mean, you couldn't just walk into the doctor and say, I'd like my notes, you know, I want to go to Dignitas, because that would stop the process in its tracks there and then. But um, so we didn't want to mention the Dignitas word to anyone um, for fear of, you know, him not being able to go.
0: And were you worried at all about the consequences of if someone did find out? You know, was that in the back yeah. of your mind?
1: Yeah, we literally told um, just close friends and family what we were doing because I we weren't sure if you know there could be police at the airport and stop us going or anything like that so we really did keep it under wraps um but i wasn't worried for myself because i just thought if i could get keith you know as a last the last thing i could possibly do for him um is what you know he wants to do if i could just help him get that far then I didn't care really what was going to happen to me after if I was going to be questioned or arrested or whatever. I thought, I'll just cope with that when it happens. Because Keith had literally told, um, you know, as I say, we told close family and friends, but also he had had told um, a psychiatrist who was uh, looking after him. He was in a care home Monday to Friday and coming home at weekends, Mm -hmm. And he had told the psychiatrist he wanted to go to Dignitas. Um, but she was very much, no, no, this isn't the right route. You can't do this sort of thing. So, I mean, we we knew he was telling people he wanted to go. So it wasn't, I knew it was clear. It wasn't, people weren't going to think it was me saying to him, come on, you've got, you know, it was purely his decision. Um, so I felt quite sort of um, some sort of comfort in the fact that Keith was, telling people it was his decision and not mine or the family's or anything like that. But, um, yeah, he, it was it was quite... I couldn't see if we'd ever get to that end hurdle. You know, we started the process, and even all the way through, I kept thinking, oh, I don't know if we can get there. There's so much we wanted. Um, but, yeah, luckily for Keith, we did do.
0: So on the day or, you know, when you're travelling there... Did you go as a family?
1: My um, daughter, well, our daughter, Charlotte, and our son, Edward, and myself and Keith um, travelled to Switzerland. We had friends, very good friends, that came to Heathrow to see us off. Um, And uh, whilst we were out there, one of Keith's friends did actually join us as well. Um, So as Strange as it sounds, we did have have a lovely time in Switzerland before. You have to go out um, a week before the actual date of your death, so um, because there's various things you have to go through prior to the actual day. Um, so we did have a lovely time, sort of making some memories, and you know, it was a really Happy occasion in one sense because we were able to spend that time as a family. As I say, one of Keith's friends joined us, and um, it was it was a really special time. As I, it sounds very strange because people expect me to say how sad it was and all this sort of thing, but you know I can't explain how happy Keith was once he knew he was back in control of of his death. You know. Um, when when you actually start looking into the process, you send all your information off to Dignitas. And um, once they receive it, they give you what's called the green light, if they can help you. And once Keith got that green light, then they would help him end his life. Keith just absolutely... It was like a uh, switch had been flicked. He was back in control. He wanted to go out. He wanted to see friends again. And he had, like, a new quality of life knowing he was in control over his death. I think it took away that fear of what the end would have been like. You know, it, you know, he didn't have that worry anymore. And he, it just completely transformed the last few months of his life knowing, you know, he was back in control.
0: For me, I... Just thinking about, you know, you know you're coming to that, yeah. that final moment. Like, that's so... Emotional. I don't know personally yeah. how you how you coped with that, but now and you look back, you know, was was that the right thing to do? Was it was it a peaceful and, and dignified death? Yes. Are you glad that you did it?
1: Definitely. and You're definitely so glad I did it for Keith because um, I I'm, I mean I'm with you. I don't know how he got his head around. Oh well, you know, as we left home, how he thought, well, I'm not coming back. I mean, what. I just cannot get my head around how he was feeling. And, you know, the day before, oh, I'm going to die tomorrow. I still can't get my head around that. I just think it was so incredibly brave and courageous. But then people have said to me, yes, but if you were facing what Keith was facing, there's a different angle to it then, isn't there? Or anyone in the last few months of a terminal illness, to stop that 24 hours a day suffering... Then you're sort of looking at it from a different angle, but it was just such a brave thing to do. And you know, it, I'm not exaggerating when I say that even right up to the end, he was laughing and joking, and it was just, and it was such a dignified way to go. You know, he he took the medicine, he chatted and laughed for a little while, and you know, he would say to his uh, to his friends previously, you know, just. See you on the other side, sort of thing. And he was just, it was just, he went to sleep, and that was it. It was a brilliant way to go. I think, you know, if it could have been in this country, the same thing with more family and friends around him, because obviously, it's difficult to travel to Switzerland. Um, then you know, he could have had another couple of years of his life living quite happily with his new uh, outlook on life. But um, sadly, that
0: wasn't to be. I guess it's quite cliche that Keith died happy, but the family were able to have those happy memories in those final moments with him, and those memories can now provide them some comfort in tough times. In them final days, Sarah remembers Keith saying that it was wrong that he had to come all the way to Switzerland, so she knew. She had to keep fighting in his memory. When she got home from Switzerland, she knew she had to join the campaign with Dignity in Dying. She thought she'd just become a member, but she ended up running the group in West Berkshire as their lead campaigner. She now campaigns for Dignity in Dying and is as vocal as she can be locally to try and change the law in the country. Sarah thinks that a change in the law isn't going to increase deaths. This is going to reduce suffering for those people, which she thinks is the most compassionate thing that we can do for people facing a horrendous end to their life. To get more of an insight into the campaign at Dignity and Dying, I also spoke to Ellie Ball, their media and campaigns officer, and I asked her, why do you think people should have the right to choose when they die.
2: Well, assistant. Dying is really about improving the lives as well as the deaths of terminally ill people. So we know that despite the fact that we do have very good end-of-life care in this country, it simply is not enough to relieve all suffering for all people. We've actually just done some research that found that even if we did have universal access to hospice care, 17 people a day would still die with absolutely no relief of their pain. So clearly there are people for whom their suffering is simply beyond the reach of palliative care and we believe those people deserve the choice to die on their own terms and decide when, how and where that happens.
0: Obviously it is quite a controversial matter still at the moment but can you understand why people may see the idea of choosing to die as suicidal?
2: Well, suicide is such an emotive term and it really concerns people who have obviously severe mental health issues and it usually involves people who are ending their lives who would otherwise be alive, which is quite different to the situation we see with, with assisted dying, um, which is about helping someone whose death is imminent and inevitable. Um, The people I speak to every day who are terminally ill and and want this choice but currently are denied it under under the current law, they're not suicidal. They don't want to die. They actually desperately want to live, but that choice has already been taken away from them by their illness. So they know they're going to die. They know there's nothing they can do to change that, and they simply want the ability to ensure that their death, when it comes, is as peaceful and dignified as possible. And for many people, that involves having the right to decide when enough is enough and then having some medication which is prescribed by a doctor which they would then take, you know, usually at home surrounded by their loved ones and then they can drift off peacefully to sleep rather than enduring a a prolonged or distressing death.
0: I guess the question for a lot of people here is how does someone really know when they are ready to end their own life? You know, how can we say that someone who is terminally ill, how do they have that mental capacity to say, yeah, now's the time that I want to do this? Of course. And we obviously need to make sure that anyone who is going down this route,
2: um, number one, fits the the eligibility criteria. So the law that we campaign for would be limited to terminally ill people who are mentally competent and who are in their final months of life. And number two, we need to ensure that that person is making a decision of their own free will, that they've had time to contemplate the the severity of the decision that they've had an opportunity to talk through all their treatment options with their doctor Um, And that can't happen at the moment. You know, people are taking drastic actions to either travel abroad to Switzerland or end their own lives in the UK because conversations aren't allowed to happen out in the open. So we believe it would be safer for all involved for there to be an upfront, safeguarded, transparent assisted dying law. And as I said, that would allow each person to pursue all their options, to talk openly about all their concerns. And then if they did meet the necessary criteria and they were given the prescription for medication they could then decide to take it whenever they wanted. They could also decide never to take it and even at any point in the process they could decide to rescind their request. And actually when we look at jurisdictions overseas that have laws similar to the ones that we're campaigning for over here, around 40% of people who go through the process and get the, the medication, they actually never end up taking it. So it's much more about having that peace of mind and reassurance than it is about actually using that medication when it comes right down to it.
0: Have people tried to challenge the law you know are there any I mean I've read of one example of uh, Phil Newby recently who's challenged this what how many people are trying to make steps to to make all of this change so
2: over the years there have been several people who've who've challenged the law so we supported Diane Pritty who had motor neuron disease um, Debbie Purdy who had multiple sclerosis and recently there have been two men with motor neuron disease who've challenged the law so last year um, well over two years we were supporting a man called Noel Conway who had motor neuron disease and he was challenging Um, the current law, which is a blanket ban on assisted dying um, on the grounds that it infringed upon his human rights. So he felt that he was being forced to suffer against his wishes and denied the choice that he wanted over his death. Um, Unfortunately, the Supreme Court threw out his case last November, but now we have Phil Newby, who's kind of picked up the baton. He also has motor neuron disease, and he's challenging the same law, but he's actually asking for quite a new approach. Um, so he's asking the courts to consider a cross-examination of witnesses, which is quite an unusual rep- um, approach for English courts. But he's hoping that being able to examine the evidence in, in such detail gives his, his case the best chance of winning. So we we had a permissions hearing for Phil's case this week, so we'll be um, awaiting, awaiting a decision on
0: that. Do you think there is any movement happening at all?
2: Definitely. I think public support has consistently been incredibly high for a change in the law. Opinion polls have consistently shown at least 80% of people support the, the kind of change that we're calling for, which would be a change in the law to allow... Uh, terminally ill, mentally competent adults the right to choose an assisted death. So certainly there's huge public support. And throughout Noel's case, we, we saw more and more politicians getting on board. We've seen um, you know, cross-party support growing Uh, and in fact in july there was a debate in the commons and the vast majority of speakers in that debate were in favour of a change in the law so certainly um, the situation is moving and overseas more and more jurisdictions are changing the law so really the tide is turning and the uk is lagging behind we need to really politicians have a duty to listen to their constituents
0: the majority of whom do want to see a change and they have a duty to act on that for families going forward I've got a a nan who has dementia and she's got no quality of life whatsoever Mm -hmm. she's kind of you know she's she's living in a shell and for me you know there's so much pressures on my family to go and visit her and see her but at the same time she doesn't even know they're there so it is really conflicted because obviously you don't want to wish someone that you love dies but balancing that with the quality of life How does this affect whole families? Exactly. I mean,
2: what's really important is that we make sure that the decisions are made by an individual. You know, we might have any number of views about someone else's quality of life and what they would want. But it's so important that it's only the decision can only be made by that individual. And that's why we have several safeguards involved in the, the, the law that we propose that would ensure that it's entirely controlled by that individual. So they would have to make the initial request um, then if two independent doctors and a high court judge determine that they did meet the criteria and they were given the medication, they, it's then going to be kept at a pharmacy near them for them to control. Um, they can decide when the time is right for them and only they they have the ability to um, administer the medication to themselves. So it really ensures that it's entirely up to that individual. And we, we trust people to make any number of decisions about their health care and treatment. At the moment, anyone can refuse life-prolonging treatment, for example, so we already accept that we can trust people to make these decisions, and we believe that we need to trust dying people to make those decisions about their deaths.
0: And I guess this is kind of the the very fine line between assisted dying and assisted suicide. No one else is involved in this decision except that person whose choice it is. And that's what you want to be very clear on. Um, Just to summarise, at Dignity and Dying, what for you are the problems with the current law on assisted dying? And what do you want to see Britain do?
2: So, at the moment, the law is simply not fit for purpose. Not only does it deny dying people choice and control over their deaths, but it also criminalizes those loved ones that do step in to help their loved one, um, which is a ridiculous situation. You know, we... We are not protecting people either ostensibly the the laws in place to protect vulnerable people but in fact we're actually pushing people to end their lives prematurely um we hear from a lot of people who end up traveling to dignitas for example that they're having to end their life much earlier than they would want to because they're worried that if they leave it any later they'll become too unwell to travel we know that's also the same with people who are ending their own lives behind closed doors we know that around Um, One Britain every eight days travels to Switzerland for an assisted death and around 300 terminally ill people end their own lives in England. So people are taking drastic actions um, because they don't have legislated choice and, and that has to change. And actually this week, in fact, 18 police and crime commissioners across the UK have joined our calls Um, for a government-led inquiry into the current law, because they also see that there are issues that have to be resolved. You know, not all of them agree that the law should change to legalise assisted dying, but they can all agree that the current situation has to be re-examined. And together we're calling on the government to to look at the wide-ranging impacts, not just on terminally ill people and their families, but also on public services like the police and the
0: NHS. Do you think that, you know, this is a last chance of kind of, seeking control of your life those final moments you being able to make that final decision of what happens to you
2: i think it's incredibly important you know we live in a society that is supposedly you know, champions individual autonomy and our right to make decisions about our lives. And this is the ultimate choice. We should, if we can make decisions about how we live our lives or our medical treatment, you know, any number of decisions about our lifestyle, we should also be able to have uh, a choice over how and when we die. And a a change in the law on assisted dying would give terminally ill people that choice.
0: To find out more about the campaign, visit dignityindying.org.uk. I'm Katie Brain and you've been listening to Goodness Gracious Grief.